from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. So I commend FERC for having built a bunch of pipelines to try to diversify where things are coming from. I I think they need to make sure that they are transparent in their application process. Was that good corporate strategy right there to get out in front of it? Or did they kind of like maybe overplay the threat to the point where people were kind of thinking, okay, they're just trying to get an advantage here. I try to give industry people, everybody the benefit of the doubt. I think they probably were scared. How worried are you on a scale of one to 10 that this is gonna be painful for people? That's an interesting question. I I would say probably seven to eight. Okay. To say I I am worried. I'm Sarah Fenske. On November 4th, many St. Louisans got an email from Spire. The email promised a, quote, important update about your natural gas service. And then came a bombshell from Spire, Missouri's president, Scott Carter. Carter wrote that the STL pipeline, which has been providing natural gas to the area since 2019, was, quote, now in jeopardy. Carter continued, quote, we want to keep you informed and prepared for potential natural gas disruptions and outages this winter if the pipeline is not kept in service. He added that there were no guarantees the pipeline could operate past December 13th due to a court ruling. And, quote, without the pipeline in place, you may be asked to conserve energy by turning down the thermostat in your home or business and reducing use of your natural gas appliances, fireplace, oven, or another appliance. Well, St. Louisans reacted with fear and horror. Jesse Irwin owns Carondelet Mechanical. That's a small heating and cooling company in St. Louis. The day after residents received Spire's email, Jesse got inquiries all day long from people eager to move from gas as an energy source. People have reached out to me wanting to switch over to electric heat already. Um, And the problem is we're in an equipment shortage and we've been having a hard time getting electric air handlers all year, especially smaller sizes. Uh, One and a half, uh, two tons have been really hot commodities Um, So there's really nothing to switch over to. There's also a propane shortage going on. So so, uh, people are, uh, uh, it seems to have agitated my customer base. So uh, that is Jesse Irwin of Carondelet Mechanical. He said he wishes he could help people out and take advantage of this demand for his services. But it's just not feasible right now. I don't like to give people bad news, um, <laughs> and that's the only news I have to give. We we don't uh, there, there's there's really no other other alternative than gas right now. And even under normal conditions, if inventory was the way it normally is, and the entire community needed to switch over to electric heat, it's it's not possible. There's not enough equipment. So those are some big problems. Should you be freaking out about Spire supplies in light of this? Well, my guest today has some insight into that. Leah Kosnick is a professor and interim chair of the Department of Economics at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Leah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you were among thousands of customers who received Spire's email last week. What did you think when you read that alert? I was surprised. Uh, I also was a little bit freaked out at first. 
But then I thought it probably was a bit of an overreaction. So I wasn't actually too worried about it. And so you're unlike most of us getting this email in that you understand some of the context going into this. Get us up to speed on this. When they talk about this STL pipeline, and this there's no guarantees it could <laughs> operate past December 13. What is going on here? So let me explain a little bit about what's going on. A few years ago, in 2017, Spire filed an application with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or or FERC. You've probably seen it referred to as FERC. And FERC's job is to regulate energy production throughout the United States. Um, So Spire filed an application with them to approve this new natural gas pipeline that would deliver natural gas to St. Louis customers. And there's nothing surprising about this. So all utilities do need to get new infrastructure approved. Um, They usually have to prove that there's an economic need for the project. And the reason is, you know, we don't want to just approve infrastructure all across the United States that's unnecessary. It would be wasteful. It would ultimately lead to higher bills for customers, and it could lead to environmental consequences. So infrastructure, be it natural gas pipelines or whatnot, do have to go through an approval process. So nothing surprising there. Spire filed their application. Um, What happened was... They had to show economic need, and they did it by having a contract. They showed a contract ahead of time saying, here is somebody that's going to want what's coming through this pipeline, and that shows there's need. But the the contract was with an affiliate of Spire. So they created an affiliate called Spire SDL Pipeline LLC. This affiliate had just the one contract with Spire itself, and the contract was for 87.5% of capacity of the pipeline. So it looked fishy. It looked to outsiders like it might be a little bit self-dealing. And so what happened is an outside group, the Environmental Defense Fund, they decided to push back on this. So they sought a review of the pipeline's approval um, based on this affiliate contract, and they took it to court. Yeah. And so, you know, environmental groups sue over these sorts of things all the time. I think what happened here that was a little bit different is that this appellate judge in D.C., ruled forum. How how big a shockwave did that ruling set off? Yeah, I mean, I've heard the, this referred to a lot over the last couple of weeks as surprising, as unexpected. And yeah, no one sort of, I think even the Environmental Defense Fund was like, wow, we won that. I mean, I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think they were pushing back because this approval process by FERC, um, it's been around since at least 1999. And there's already been some concern that they uh, aren't doing it as well as they should be doing it. So this is sort of like, this court case was an opening to really get them to think about how they approve these pipelines. Yeah, there was a quote here from an environmental attorney. I don't think it could be overstated how (laughs) important the D.C. Circuit decision is. So this judge in D.C. rules against this pipeline, and it sounds like there may be grounds for him to do this. But does that mean then the whole thing shuts down? Right. So, well, it's ultimately at this moment up to FERC itself. So what happened when um, the court ruled is that FERC then immediately issued a a temporary approval of the pipe to continue operating. So, I mean, the problem was that they are in the middle. They are operating since, as you said, 2019. So FERC wanted to keep the status quo for now. They did. They did. And so but the problem is that their temporary approval lasts, as Spire said in the email, only until December 13th. 
But it's in their uh, purview to extend it. And I will say that there's been press releases from the Environmental Defense Fund, like they want it extended. So they want it extended. Spire presumably wants it extended. Everybody wants it extended. FERC just needs to do it. And I would be really surprised if they didn't. Okay, so I'm following everything you're saying here up to the point where the Environmental Defense Fund that sued to challenge this approval, that they're saying they want it extended. They want this pipe to continue operating. Why would they want that if they're the ones who sued to stop it? Well, they want temporary approval. So they want it through the wintertime. I mean, I think they don't want customers as well not being able to heat their homes in the wintertime. I mean, what kind of PR is that? So, um, yeah, so they want it approved through the wintertime. They certainly don't want it approved forever. They do want the process to be, you know, reviewed and and done again. Um, But, yeah, I think they don't want anybody to have to lose heat over the wintertime. Well, I I appreciate that as a St. Louisan (laughs) who has natural gas. Uh, But so if this pipeline is knocked out of service, that takes us back to the 2019 or the pre-2019 status quo. Does that mean we're back to living in the Carter administration and we got to turn down our thermostat and suffer this winter? Well, my bigger fear actually is less the pipeline shut down than higher price. We're probably going to suffer a little bit this winter, to be totally honest with you. Mm -hmm. And my fear, if anybody's seen the recent releases of like inflation numbers and what's been happening with prices, those inflation numbers, it was like 6%, you know, for the overall year. But uh, that's an average. And actually, energy prices were really high. It was something like uh, oil and petroleum was like a 50% increase. Natural gas was about a 25% increase. So I'm, I'm, I'm really not as worried about the pipeline being shut down, although I do realize it still could conceivably. I'm a little more worried that people are going to turn down their thermostat and whatnot because the, the prices, the bills are going to get higher. Hmm. Well, that might be a good thing for the environment, I guess, as long as we can just turn it down a few a degrees. Bit, right? um, <laughs> as somebody who hates winter, I'm not sure how I feel about all this. <laughs> I'm <doing> up here. <laughs> so what do you think is going to happen here? I mean, basically, FERC is being asked to reassess its yeah. own decision. Is there yeah. any reason where they might why they might come to a different conclusion here. Well, so I, so again, I think FERC has known for a while um, that they needed to review this process um, from, they're basing it again on things that, uh, from 1999. And so there's already been talk that in order to show economic need for these sorts of projects, they need not just a contract any longer. And Spire isn't the first to have like sort of created an affiliate to do this, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably why they were so surprised because they weren't really actually the first to do this. Um, so what FERC is probably going to have to do is show things like um, market demand, like consumers wanting you know an increase, a projected increase in industry demand for natural gas and energy, and then um, that would be a better way to sort of approve these sorts of infrastructure projects. And so that's that's what. I foresee FERC doing is reevaluating how they uh, approve these. Um, and they approve them not just with contracts, but with like demand projections. So talking about this winter and how we're all going to be suffering right. because prices are so high, does that in some ways make the case that, okay, even if, you know, the grounds for which you approved this right. weren't maybe grounds that you want to go with going forward, right. there is some need for this right. pipeline? Yeah. So, you know, I let me just say that, like, um, I do think it's important for Missouri and all other states to have a diversification of energy resources. You know, you don't want to just rely on coal or oil or natural gas or one pipeline, for example. So I commend FERC for having built a bunch of pipelines to try to diversify where things are coming from. I, I think they need to make sure that they are transparent in their application process and do it you know, appropriately. Uh, but we do want to um, you know, have enough pipeline and supplies coming through so that we aren't reliant in a you know, ruinously scary 
freeway if something happens on one resource for one pipeline, for sure. So you clearly um, know a lot more about FERC than our average listener. Are there any other examples that you'd look back on where they dealt with this sort of issue or, or had to you know, do this sort of rethinking right. that seem instructive to what could happen here? Right. Well, so let me just say that I, I am familiar with FERC. I've written a number of research papers on FERC, but from a slightly different angle. So my research has mainly been on hydroelectric power, not natural gas. And so the staff and uh, some of the regulations and the procedures are different. So I, I'm not actually the best expert on natural gas and FERC. Um, and uh, and uh, I think, you know, what you may be referring to a little bit is how industry tends to respond to just regulations. And I will say that, and so my initial comment that I was surprised by the email, but not that worried, because historically, industry usually tends to overreact um, when they get new surprising regulations. And, and I get it. I mean, who wants costs or all of a sudden, you know, you have to do this or, mm-hmm. um, you know, you have some big new regulation. And so industry usually uh, in the moment sort of says, oh, my God, this is going to be really expensive. Consumer bills are going to go up. We're going to have to shut down. We're going to go out of business. Um, and I can give examples. Sulfur in the 1990s, truck engines and diesel regulation in the t- 2000s. I mean, industry always says this is going to be ruinous. And then you know what? They figure out how to deal with it. Yeah. So they'll end up figuring out how to deal with it. And FERC, um, a little bit more to your question, FERC is really the umpire here. So a lot of these regulations, it's like a, a, you know, a game of baseball, and it's usually the energy producers on one side and interest groups that are either environmental or recreation, like local interest groups on the other side. And FERC's job is to be the umpire between them. And so their goal really is for society and citizens and to try to come up with the best decision making that balances these two interests. I'm sure they're not perfect. I'm sure they've made mistakes. But my experience with FERC from the hydro side is that they do try to do their best. Hmm. Okay, so you feel you feel decent about this regulatory agency. Yeah. Is this one where you'd see a big swing in who's on it or how they'd act based on who's in the White House? Well, that is true. So, you know, they do have five commissioners. And so, you know, that does mean if the, you know three out of the five, if they're from one party, that tends to swing things sort of one way or the other. And I do believe um, that they're about to put a new commissioner on, so they might have now have a Democratic majority. I'm not 100% positive on that, um, but that, that can make a difference. So that can make a difference on these regulations. Um, but let me just say again that I know that FERC was reviewing this pipeline policy for a while now. Okay. Actually. So this, it, it sounds like for Spire, this was just kind of bad timing. Their lawsuit happened to be up yes. right at a point when maybe this this long yes. simmering issue comes to a head. Yeah. I mean, they really weren't the only one to create these sort of affiliates that like showed economic need. Um, but it, they, it is kind of specious, I mean, to do so. But they weren't the first. So that's yeah. probably why they were so surprised. I'm curious what you thought just strategically about that email. I've heard from so many people who are like, what did you think of that email? Yeah. And I don't know, like, was that good corporate strategy right there to get out in front of it? Or did they kind of like maybe overplay the threat to the point where people were kind of thinking, okay, they're just trying to get an advantage here? Well, so I'm just an economist, not a PR person. But um, I will say, and I try to give industry people, everybody, the benefit of the doubt. And so, like I said earlier, I think they probably were scared. They probably were a little bit like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? You know, there was the experience of, of Texas last year. And, and energy prices going through the roof because of supply difficulties. Mm-hmm. So they probably, I would bet it was a combination of they were genuinely worried 
with perhaps a little bit of scare tactics, hoping it would get consumers on board to protest a little bit and say, oh my God, approve this pipeline, or or at least maybe nudge FERC to immediately approving at least a temporary permit like for longer. So I would like to believe it was a little combination of both, genuine concern as well as fear tactics a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. It's, I'm just an economist. <laughs> so December 13th, that sounds like that's the date we need to keep an eye on, whether yeah. they can get that extension before then, yes. keep this pipeline operating. Yes, that's key. So in the meantime, we heard at the very early part of this conversation, we heard from Jesse Irwin, who Mm -hmm. works for this Carondelet mechanical. And he told us the other day um, that even if his industry wasn't seeing the sort of equipment shortage that he described to us, that he feels like electric solutions just don't make sense in a lot of cases. Electric heat is really good in small spaces. It's good for apartments. It's good for small houses. It's good for condos. Um, we have a lot of brick structures in this city. They're, they're huge and they're, they're hard to heat. They require a lot of BTUs and gas is the solution. It's the way to go. So that's interesting, coming from a guy who works to install electric. Jesse Irwin <laughs> also did tell us one big and simple tip for everyone who's hoping to stay warm this winter. The best thing the average person can do right now is change their furnace filter. You really don't want your equipment to break down right now. This is the worst possible time to have to replace equipment or do repairs. And you can avoid so many of those things simply by changing your furnace filter to an inexpensive furnace filter. You don't want a a very expensive hypoallergenic furnace filter for most applications. You want to get just a, a normal pleated filter that allows you to have some airflow. And that is Jesse Irwin with Carondelet Mechanical. There is some news you can use. You know, we always sort of want to, like, shout it at the world and and (laughs) shake our fist at what's happening politically. You can just change your furnace filter here. Uh, But, Leah, you did mention you're concerned about prices this winter for natural gas, for heat, for all sorts of things. Um, How worried are you on a scale of 1 to 10 that this is going to be painful for people? That's an interesting question. I, I would say probably seven to eight. I okay. hate to say. I, I am worried. Um, I do realize there's been a lot of um, expression by economists and certainly politicians that inflation might be temporary and things might not be so bad. And I'm hoping that's true. I'm a little bit more scared than the average economist on that. I, I'm, I am afraid that inflation might be genuinely ticking up in, in a little bit more, I don't want to say permanent, but uh, mm-hmm. sustained fashion. So I, I am pretty worried about that, actually. Wow. Well, I don't want to scare your listeners. No, though. I mean, it's it's good to have your perspective on this. And, and maybe there is the extra push you needed to change your furnace filter. <laughs> so <laughs> for sure. Well, Leah Kosnick, I want to thank you so much for joining us yeah. today. Thank you very much for having me. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. It was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.